This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Corey Johnson. We're here every day bringing the latest news in the world of business and finance. And the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio. And I think what we're doing is creating not only a great company, but a great global opportunity for consumers to not only consume great content uh, made by both entities, but to consume it under circumstances that are innovative and compelling and, and much more user-friendly. And that's what the consumer of today demands. Well, we shall see if this turns out to be a good deal or not, but we're going to take a guess right now. We've got Chris Palmieri joining us to look at that. was, of course, Bob Iger, the Disney CEO. Uh, talking about this big deal, Chris Palmieri, who covers Disney for us from our Los Angeles Bureau for Bloomberg News, joins us right now, as well as Eric Gordon, professor at the Ross School of Business and the University of Michigan, joining us from Ann Arbor. Chris, let me start with you. What do we know about this deal? Maybe some things that we didn't, whether it's price or certain uh, things that they're buying, that Disney's buying and other things that they're not? Well, I mean, there there certainly are some head scratchers in all this. Uh, one of this is, you know, kind of the future of uh, the 20th century Fox film business. You know, what, uh, where that brand, whether that still exists, or the future of the the Fox lot here in Los Angeles. Uh, you know, Disney strategy uh, historically is the Fox a lot of, right outside your window. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, historically has been to focus on these big, you know, uh, you know, movies to carry all around the world, uh, Star Wars and Marvel and that, and less so on some of the artier movies that Fox, you know, has won an Oscar for, you know, say, a 12 Years a Slave. So so whether that all goes away and, uh, you know, Disney's market share in movies uh, with Fox could it be as high as 40 uh, percent. So they're going to have a lot of clout in the movie business. That's one thing we'll be looking at. This is marginalia, but do they own the, the real estate underneath that lot? Uh, we've reported that that is actually staying with the Fox folks and that Disney's going to rent it for a while. I have to say, one of the things I love in your story, Chris, is you uh, quote Barton Crockett. Uh, folks, you know, he's followed the media industry for a long time. He's over at B. Riley, FBR. He said, Disney is becoming the Walmart of Hollywood, huge and dominant. That's going to have a big influence up and down the supply chain. Eric Gordon, come on in on uh, our conversation here. Professor at Ross School of Business at the University of Michigan. You watch the M&A environment. You've been messaging with me and Corey throughout the day, talking about this deal. Um, your take on it. You know, I think this is a deal that is uh, driven initially by a technology story and then a consumer behavior story. The technology story is streaming, and streaming has enabled the consumer behavior story, which is cord cutting, and that's led Disney and probably everybody else to figure out how their old-style business survives in the face of cord cutting. And what Disney seems to have decided is that the way you survive is you hoard all the content you can get, and that way you can fight Netflix and Apple and Google. Although I have to say, on, on the way uh, walking to the studio, I saw the net neutrality story move, and I wonder if they got it wrong. I wonder if instead of controlling content, you want to control, you want to be Verizon or AT&T. I'm so glad you brought that up. I, I think that it's not an accident that on the same, well, maybe a wonderful coincidence, but at the same time, it might be an accident that uh, uh, that you've got Disney deciding they want to double down on content, and you've got the the Federal Communications Commission saying. You'll, the biggest companies might have an advantage here because they can pay to get their content to consumers faster. 
And so that, that, that market power, a consolidation of market power and having dollars to spend to deliver content is going to matters more this afternoon than it did this morning. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, when you see people on different sides of the desk negotiating and the people on one side get bigger and the people on the other side get bigger, their fights end up the same way. But the smaller people, the innovators, the independents, they don't get a seat at the table. So I feel like there's so many different angles to this story. Chris, what about James Murdoch? We've uh, already heard that Bob Iger said he's going to talk about a possible role at Disney with Murdoch, Rupert Murdoch's son, uh, James, and he's currently Fox's CEO after Bob completes work on the merger transition. Should we start to think of James Murdoch as a successor to Bob Iger? Well, uh, you know, one of the bits of news that came out today is that Bob Iger isn't going anywhere anytime soon. He's renewed for four more years. Uh, So um, the question is, is is anybody want to stick around and wait that long? Uh, it doesn't mean, though, know. that he couldn't he back out of that? Couldn't he say after a couple of years, if everything's done, he could back out? He could back out, but he's generally been going the other way yeah. and extending his contract. Mm. Uh, you know, we actually expected to maybe get a little more clarity on James Murdoch's role going forward, and we didn't get that today. Uh, you know, he's um, it's you know it was hinted that you know he would play play some role at Disney going forward, but uh, nothing definitive. And so, uh, you know, this is one of the other big head scratchers: is what's going to go on with the Murdochs going forward? Uh, they're left now with. Uh, a company that's substantially shrunk from where it was yesterday, and um, and and actually has a little more debt than we were anticipating. Right, uh, seven and a half billion dollars on it. So this was um, a lot of money. I was kind of blown away a little bit by the amount of money. Fifty-two point four billion dollar deal, Disney. Yeah, but still. Eric, let me, let me ask you really quick. We, we've, you and I have been having this email debate all day. You, your argument is that Disney's getting got out of here too late, and they was just trying to get money, using money to get in stock to catch up because the, the CEO made the wrong decisions early on as it relates to streaming. My argument is that is that he he got getting there late is really good when all the first people there are going to lose billions to define the market, and you can come into the market when it's right for profits. You believe in the smart CEO theory. I believe in I the. I believe in this one is a smart I, CEO. I, I, I believe in the. You know, are they really that smart? I, I think you're probably right. I mean, Iger is smart. I mean, I, Iger's other acquisitions have worked out pretty well. Well, he's got he's Pixar, gotten very Disney. I was just going to say uh, he's he's smart about Lucas. buying franchises, big money franchises, and then leveraging them across animation, across the parks, across merchandising, um, movie studios. Yeah. I guess we'll see. We'll see. This is a different kind of acquisition. We'll see if they have the Disney same Disney shares, results. by the way, they're up, I think, uh, more than 2% today, up 2.8%. Quarter. I love having these guys on. Yes. Chris Palmieri uh, covers uh, right, up, right upstairs in the Fox studio, looking down at them and sharing his thoughts with us, as well as Eric Gordon from the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. This is Bloomberg. We're going all the way back for the latest, greatest hits from the 1920s. No, we're taking the law all the way back to what How it was like Paul in 1950. I mean, where were these songs coming no, from? No, I'm saying taking it back to 1915. looks that he's giving 2015 us. is when, uh, before the world went neutrality yes, and the internet, yes. uh, as Larry Downs was about to point out. 
did just fine without net neutrality. Maybe it will going forward. Larry Downs uh, works at Georgetown, uh, industry insider when it comes to telecom, and a, and a great uh, thought leader uh, in the best sense of the word. Joins us right now from Berkeley, California, as well as Jonathan Spalter, CEO of U.S. Telecom. Uh, and Jonathan, glad to have you uh, on the show, too. Um, uh Larry, I want to start with you. Uh, that's part of your, the premise here, right? Is that is that you think that this uh, this getting rid of net neutrality means we're going to back to the lousy internet that gave us all the great companies that we want to keep? Well, not exactly. I mean, we're <laughs> we're not we're actually not going back to 2015 because, in addition to rolling back the the 2015 uh, rules and the and the uh, reclassification of broadband, the FCC has not gotten rid of all the rules. They've they've kept one very important rule, which is the transparency rule, and they've enhanced it, which will make it easier for both the FTC and the FCC to enforce that. Uh, so, in fact, actually, we're, we're back in time, but it's it's a it's a even more pleasant version of the internet than we. That's had how memory then. works. Right, make make the internet great again. Um, uh, Jonathan Spalter, uh, let me uh, get your take on this. As as a CEO of a telecom company, U.S. Telecom, well, uh, t- describe really, really briefly it's kind of your role, where you guys are on the internet, and then what your take is on this uh, new net neutrality uh, uh, repeal. Sure. So uh, U.S. Telecom is actually the uh, the trade group that represents all of the. Uh, broadband providers in the U.S., not just the largest ones, AT&T and Verizon, but also some of our smallest ones, some of the more rural communities. And we're all united around a similar set of principles, which is the net neutrality protections that we have offered in an ironclad way to America's consumers since literally the inception of the Internet um, uh, will continue tomorrow just as they have today. The the, the, the world doesn't need to, to save the Internet. The sky is not falling. We are going to have even enhanced net neutrality protections with this new order because not only does it uh, extend net neutrality protections going forward, no throttling, no blocking transparency, as Larry had mentioned, but it now extends it to beyond just broadband providers to include the entire Internet ecosystem, including some of the largest online uh, Internet giants of the land, Apple, and Google, and Facebook. So consumers now are going to be able to live under a consistent set of rules with a new cop on the beat, the Federal Trade Commission, uh, knowing that the net neutrality protections are going to exist and flourish tomorrow, just as they had yesterday. So what's different for you, then, in your business? Well, what's really different is that... Uh, we now can go back to a, a lighter touch, more flexible and nimble approach to ensuring. Well, I, guess, that I hate to interrupt. Uh, what what did what did the not light touch look like? Was there extra paperwork you had to file? Was there something? I mean, what what was it like? Sure. What was so onerous under the under the what net changed? neutrality rules? Yeah. Well, what what changed was it two years ago? The last FCC decided to govern the internet as though it was a public utility, uh, imposing utility-style regulations that were written in 1934, an era of the outhouse, not the smart house, on our most innovative, fastest-moving companies, broadband providers, uh, and it just didn't make any sense. Increased compliance burdens, increased costs to maintain and manage those compliance. It had really put a stranglehold on not only the confidence that we've had to invest, and we've seen that investment actually go down. 20, 2014, we invested over 
$78.4 billion in America. All right, well, I want to take, I'll take this book apart. And I, again, and I interrupt and I apologize, but we're all friends here, and we are actually. I, I can do that. Um, so, all right, so yeah, FCC rulings were from the 30s. Well, FTC rule was created in 1914. So, out of the fact that the laws are old or that the Constitution is old, uh, you know, I'm, uh, to me, doesn't necessarily carry a lot of weight. But and, and then, then there's the argument about slower spending on internet infrastructure right now, broadband infrastructure. You know, we're going from uh, a world where uh, five 4G investments are slowing down and 5G investments have yet to really ramp up. So that could be another reason we've seen slower investment, no? Well, you know, the fact is just to deploy uh, 5G networks in our land with S-speeds and the lower latency, they're going to require some of the most conservative estimates say it's going to require $130 billion of new dollars to actually just for fiber to deploy those networks. And we're going to need policies and frameworks for those policies that are going to incent more investment. With the repeal of this Title II approach, um, call, uh, considering broadband to be a telecommunication service and not an information service that it is, is going to give more confidence to CEOs and the broadband providers industry to actually make those investments. And I'm just going to say, Wire did some research, and they said many broadband providers actually increased their investments after the change in the 2015 rules, and that even those that cut back on spending told shareholders that the net neutrality rules didn't actually affect their plans. Forgive me, Larry, just saved about 20 seconds. Your final thoughts on this? Yeah, well, I, I agree that, uh, you know, what we're really going to see is better uh, environment for investment and innovation at the infrastructure level. And we're going to need that because, you know, as you know, we're still waiting for the infrastructure bill from the government. Uh, it doesn't look like it's coming anytime soon. And if it does, it's not going to include much for broadband. But again, after 2015, Wired did some research and said many actually increased their investments. Larry Downs over at Internet, uh, project director at the Georgetown Center for Business and Public Policy, and Jonathan Spalter. I'm driving in my car, I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. You know what drives me crazy, Carol Manser? Uh, just about everything. People ask me if Bitcoin's a bubble. So I thought we'd ask Brett Ewan, <laughs> Chief Market Strategist at First Franklin Financial Services, joins us from Tallahassee, Florida, on the phone. And I wonder, uh, Brett, uh, is, is the Bitcoin bubble conversation driving you crazy? I mean, whether or not it's in a bubble, uh, you know, certainly the thing has no, the intrinsic value is, is presently hard to find. Does it matter if Bitcoin's in a bubble right now? Great question. I've, uh, it's one in a row. <laughs> right? Uh, so how I take a view of this, I think the bubble in Bitcoin is in the conversation at this point, not in the actual coin itself. And I, I believe that because of a couple things. When I look at and I think of a bubble, I think that we need some more market participants to be attracted to this asset class before we truly call it a bubble. And what I mean by that, if you look at the top 1,000 owners in Bitcoin, they own approximately around 40%, 45% of all of Bitcoin. The top 100 own around 17%. And so in our mind, once we get a broader breath, I think the institutional market is coming into Bitcoin right now. We have the, the futures markets established. 
we need uh, – the market, I think, is going to lure the masses in, and that's when we get the true bubble and the real danger occurs. Because by having it so concentrated in the hands of so few investors, your guess, your estimate is that they're not going to just all of a sudden sell so that the price of Bitcoin goes down they, a lot. They literally cannot do that. They, any of those 1,000 investors, if they were to dump their position – um, more than likely, they would contact each other and do some kind of transaction like that. But look, there's no rules on collusion there, mm. talking to each other. That's unregulated. And I think the burst of a bubble, if it is a bubble, will happen. We need the masses to get involved in this. And that's where, where the uh, bursting could occur. Um, but back to this, I think that when we talk about bubbles and people look for bubbles and anyone who survived the dot-com uh, era or, or the, the housing uh, boom that uh, preceded the 2008 collapse, um, looks for a bubble with the notion that it's going to affect a lot of people and that, a lot of, that there are a lot of um, uh, unintended consequences of that. And I don't see that with Bitcoin. I don't see it yeah. reaching into our, and, you can, our, into the fundamentals of our economy or – that's, you know, and I, and I know this time it's different. It's a dangerous thing to say. Yeah. But. So I would say that's exactly what I'm trying to say. So the, the bubble is in the actual conversation. If you were to go out and ask 1,000 people about Bitcoin, probably 900 of them would say, yeah, I've heard of it. It's a bubble. But how many of those 900 actually own Bitcoin? Or you know, anything related to Bitcoin. It, right, yeah. You didn't it, have to own a subprime mortgage to find out that subprime mortgages were going to mess you up. Yeah, but almost everyone you knew owned real estate. Right. And they shouldn't have been, you know. So, so, so what do you – okay, so investors who are interested in Bitcoin stay away, wait, what? You know, that's a hard call. I think that if, you know, if, if, you're, if you were going to take a position in Bitcoin, it should be the small speculative portion of your portfolio because you're diving into something that um, you truly don't understand, and in investments, that's not always a good thing. So if you are going to do that, uh, make sure that's the smallest speculative part of your portfolio at risk. So when you look wider than that, right, so you look, look at, at the rest of the markets, do you see the same appetite for risk when you look at the, at, at the bond market, when you look at the, the equity markets right now? Well, I mean, if you look at the bond market, you know, these – these credit spreads are, are very tight. Um, if you look at equities, we're on the higher end of valuation ranges here. I mean, but does do they deserve to be? I mean, let's, let's look at the environment we're in. We're in a global central bank easy environment. And, you know, that, that, that gives some reason to be a little higher in valuations right here, right? Because of liquidity that's out there. And then let's look at the United States. So, if you think about it, this is the best business environment in the United States that we've seen in over 25 to 30 years. Think about the clarity. If this tax bill goes through next week, that CEOs and leaders of corporations all over the, all over the country have right now, they don't have to worry about tax burdens or changes in tax laws for many years, and they certainly don't have to worry about new regulations coming on board. 
So as far as projects and execution of their capital, it, it's clear vision of what they can do now. All right. So, Brett Ewing, if we agree with your assessment here, and so this is good for corporations, what about for everyday Americans? What about for small businesses? What about for consumers? There's your backbone of the economy. You know, do they benefit as well with this tax or potential tax overhaul, especially when we continue to see wage growth not really happening? I mean, what about that? Or do we continue to just have a greater divide between the haves and the have-nots? Mm-hmm. Got about 45 seconds here. Okay. I think that what you're going to see in 2018 on the second half is true wage growth kick in a little higher than it is. We have the, the, the workers coming back into the workforce. But if this tax law goes through, the average household, if they have 2.5% wage growth and they're at $100,000, they're going to have 5% free cash flow, new disposable cash. And that's good. If it gets the economy to 3 to 3.5%, every single individual in this country will be a winner. So if, everyone's, so if, every, if your calculation is right and everyone spends every dime of what they've got, it'll be good for the economy. Absolutely. Let's get spending. It's Christmas time, everybody. Break up those credit cards. You can pay for it next year. Are we supposed to be saving, though? Nah. Savings for suckers. Brett Ewing, Chief Market Strategist at First Franklin Financial Services. Take a shot. On the phone from Tallahassee, Florida. This is Bloomberg Radio. Sounds like Salesforce PR calling me to complain after I say Oracle had a good quarter. Uh, That has happened. Oracle had, a, I think, kind of good quarter in the cloud, but uh, Crawford Del Pratt's paying careful attention to this. EVP at IDC. Look at Oracle. Well, uh, what do you think of the numbers here? Yeah, you know, I think this whole thing comes down to expectations. Um, look, they they forecasted last quarter that uh, cloud revenue would be between 39 and 43% growth, and they grew at 44% growth. And I think that the general consensus probably was that they would do better. And I think that the bottom line is that the compares are getting harder. I mean, you've got a tech company growing a core part of its business in high double digits. Um, they delivered on the revenue growth they were looking for. They are pivoting to the cloud. They're doing it successfully without a lot of margin for error. Um, and I tend to concur uh, with you. I think this was a this was a pretty decent quarter, but I think the expectations got out in front of what people were looking for. All right. So the stock's down 3.6% in the after hours, Crawford. So are you saying, hey, investors, everybody lighten up. This company is doing what it should be doing. So this is a company that built its business by selling very, very sophisticated databases into companies of all different sizes that basically is now moving that business into the cloud, Mm -hmm. and they're moving developers into the cloud. They have to provide the tools. They have to keep customers engaged, and they also are growing an applications business. So over the last few years, they've invested in CapEx dramatically to build out their own data centers to host this this cloud infrastructure. To compete directly with Amazon.com. Uh, Amazon Web Services, I should say. To compete with Amazon.com, to compete with Microsoft Azure. I mean, these guys are swinging for the fences. They're they're, they're playing in the big leagues here. They are building out a cloud, which is, by the way, what other... Uh, what we call second-platform tech companies have tried to do. And these guys are delivering high double-digit growth as they pivot to that business. And they're attracting a herd of developers to that, um, to that new cloud. So I think that you, know, you have to kind of keep your expectations under control here because their bookings have gone, you know, in the last year, parabolic. And now we're starting to see the compares get harder, and they're continuing to, 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 to see the revenue growth associated with that. But it's not going to grow to the moon here. You know, it's going gonna, it's gonna to taper off. 
So to that, what kind of customer moves to the Oracle cloud if they're in a, a not on the cloud? Number one, it's hard to imagine. But companies that aren't, you know, why why would you not go with Amazon, the market leader, or Microsoft, with whom you've got a long term relationship? Why would you move your business to the Oracle cloud? Yeah. So great question. So um, thank you. If you well, you're very yeah exactly. You didn't know there'd be a test. <laughs> so so the bottom line is that there are fusion applications, right? So applications are you know that compete with companies like Workday, uh, companies that that uh, Oracle has those applications, and they're trying to compete with 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 them straight up, and that's why they've seen their software as a service business grow. But the core part of Oracle's business is that database. So there are all of us, all of Oracle's customers are in to your point, Corey, in the cloud in some way, shape, or form. But that core or Oracle database and all the custom applications that companies have built around that core, that Oracle database, that moves, that needs to move to the cloud. So in my mind, the key number to watch with Oracle over the next few quarters is that what we call PaaS, platform as a service. That's where really? companies will move. But yeah, that seems like data. it's the worst business they're in. It seems like ultimately that's got to be a low margin business and that's not what enterprise software is about. Yeah, well, so I would argue that the worst business they're in is the IaaS, the infrastructure as a service business. That's selling raw. To your point, dog eat dog. Um, uh, uh, raw crunch your CPU numbers cycles. here, store your junk yeah, here. Crunch your numbers, raw CPU cycles. Really tough business to compete. In. But the platform as a service market—that's where the Oracle database will reside, and customers will program in the cloud and and build their custom apps and build new kinds of apps on that Oracle database in the cloud. The trick for Oracle is not lose. Using that customer, because to your point, hmm, we're going to get off Oracle. What would it cost to put this database on Amazon? What would it cost to put this database somewhere else? And that's where Oracle has to have leading edge technology in order to capture those customers when they make that leap, which they will make. Crawford, how sticky though is it that somebody who starts working with Oracle stays with Oracle um, versus another company, or is it pretty easy to kind of move back and forth? It's very. This is a very sticky business, Carol. Yeah. Um, and the reason it's very sticky is because I've built the, the the spinal system of my company off that Oracle, off the data that's in that Oracle database. So you know, if somebody says, "Oh, we can move this to Amazon and we can easily program a new database," and it doesn't work, my company is really in Grounded. in dire straits, really in trouble. So it's a sticky business. So uh, as we look at these results, then what, uh, we got the sort of cloud. So you're, what you're saying is cloud. Cloud's going great, and it's not slowing down, even as everyone thought it, wanted, thought it was going to slow down and start to slow down at this point, even as the year-over-year comps are tough. But but what yeah, well, which, which I think is which which I think is impressive, right? So you've got you yeah. know, total cloud revenues, you know that that grew four points as a percent of the total. Um, on-premise software is kind of you know that's that's tricky, right? Because that's the biz that that dropped three points as a percent of revenue down to sixty-five percent of their business, and that's the business that they're really having the vice right now. They need to keep that business flat to slightly down. But if that business starts to crater fa uh, faster than the cloud business grows, Oracle's got a problem, and that's what everyone's kind of watching. Uh, over time. And then the hardware business, you know, the old Sun Microsystems business that they bought, that's down to 10% of the total, down from 11% uh, 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 a year ago. Wait, which that's business, sorry? Really which one? Oh, that's the hardware, the hardware business. So that business is actually now, what they do with that business is, that's what they move into data centers to basically process massive amounts of data at scale. Um, and that's, you know, become a very, very high performance, um, leading edge customer kind of application. So as I said, what you need to watch with, with these guys is how fast can they grow that core business around the database? Okay, we'll do that. 
If Crawford Del Pret from IDC tells us to how to look at a company, it's probably a good idea to do it that way. That's why we have you on, Crawford Del Pret. Thanks for your time. Move around. Motion creates the motion. I feel the earth move under my feet. You move like they do. I've never seen anyone move that fast. Shake. Shake. All right, people, let's move like we've got a purpose. called Movers and Shakers. They cost a little more, but that name cracked me up. Bloomberg Markets, Movers and Shakers with Carol Masser and Corey Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. All right, everybody, time for your movers and shakers. <clears throat> Excuse me, winners and losers on this Thursday afternoon. S&P 500, 123 names higher today, 382 lower. We saw, I think, back-to-back gains for the S&P 500. Zero on change. Oracle, though, Charlie mentioned it. Let me just go back to it. Uh, shares a little bit lower in the uh, aftermarket, down about 1.2%. Kind of bouncing around a little bit, though. Now down about half a percent. Oracle's second quarter adjusted revenue of $9.63 billion. That is a beat. The estimate out there among analysts we surveyed, $9.57 billion. Second quarter adjusted EPS, 70 cents a share, two pennies better than what Wall Street was forecasting. Second quarter cloud revenue, $1.52 billion. So again, shares of Oracle uh, down about seven-tenths of a percent in the after hours. Little changed in the regular session, and shares of Oracle are up about 30%. We're going to talk a little bit more about Oracle uh, in just a few minutes. Corey, what do you got? I, in fact, will be talking about Oracle on, on, uh, on television just a little bit. Um, here's a blast from the past. Yeah. Muriel Siebert, remember her? Yes. One of the first women uh, uh, to run an investment well. brokerage yeah. firm. Love we still her. interview her back in the day. She called me yelling at me furiously once when the stock hit an all-time high because I'd done a story saying that the, just because they might allow for trading online did not make this a dot-com. And yet the stock had gone crazy. And she What's was big that? over the stock. Muriel Siebert, shares oh, of Siebert Financial. So once again, shares of Seabert Financial are soaring today, uh, not because it's going to be a dot-com and anything with the word dot-com in it is going to uh, uh, soar. No, it's in fact because uh, it's there's a Bitcoin investment involved. I'm not really? kidding. Wow. The shares doubled here today huh. on the notion that this 50-year-old tiny little brokerage, uh, Seabert Financial, uh, is going to be somehow involved in the world of Bitcoin, partnering with Overstock.com to offer discounts and trading of stocks. Uh, and eventually expanded to Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. So that that sort of notion of some nascent plan that might in some little way use allow for trading of stocks using uh, Bitcoin for payment, which again is impossible because Bitcoin doesn't allow you to know who the buyer is. And you can't trade stocks with someone unless you know the buyer is because you run afoul of money laundering laws. Nonetheless, sent shares of uh, Siebert Financial hmm. uh, soaring today. The ticker's S-I-E-B, and the shares are up 129% wow. to give it a $262 million market cap. Uh, let's talk about a company with uh, a little bit more, a larger market cap. We're talking about Tiffany, a uh, $12.3 billion market cap, in fact. In the news today, uh, it is the number four gainer in the S&P 500 on this Thursday. Stock up 3.4%, up more than 3 bucks to $99.34 a share. What's it doing this year? It's up 28%, 52-week high. Uh, Tiffany upgraded to buy by a city analyst uh, who is optimistic on the company's management as well as... 
drum roll please, as the potential for involvement in future M&A. Uh, so boosting the price target to a street high of 115 a share from 92 sees increasing odds that the company becomes a target, Corey, for a European luxury conglomerate. Adds that shares are attractive due to increasing tailwind from uh, currency and likely EPS lift from tax reform. So a separate note, uh, the city analyst, another city analyst says the views branded jewelry as one of the most attractive segments in luxury and considers acquisition scenarios by LVMH, Kering, Richemont, and Swatch Group. Uh, Pier 1, you ever shop there? Uh, sometimes. I don't know. I walk in and out Stock collapsing day down 23%, having a miserable year, down 41% on the year after offering guidance. Uh, the midpoint of their financial range for the fiscal 2018 EPS uh, and same source sales uh, EPS guidance not great and same source sales negative one percent to flat. They're blaming uh, Harvey and Irma, but they're also saying across the board they're seeing a highly promotional activity, a rising fulfillment cost from online sales, uh, and their gross margins uh, falling down uh, 36 basis points. So the, the, it just sounds like a tough time for them. Again, blaming the hurricanes, but also uh, big issues across the board for them. And I just want to mention both Fox, uh, 20, 21st Century Fox uh, shares are uh, among the biggest gainers in the S&P 500 on news of that Disney deal. All right, let's get to the volatility index report on this Thursday because it did trend higher. The VIX brought to you by... SIBO, VIX Options and Futures. Volatility can be harnessed with SIBO, VIX Options and Futures. See disclosures and learn more at cboe.com slash Powerful Outcomes VIX. As for the Volatility Index report, let's take a look at the VIX. Up 1.5%. The VIX, Corey, closing today at 10.36. This is Bloomberg. All right, Dave, you're up. Uh, hi, uh, my name is Dave. Wilson, where are you? Wilson! Just what do you think you're doing, Dave? We're going for the price on Wilson. Open up the door, it's Dave! Who? Dave! Hey, Mr. Wilson! Mr. Wilson joins us right now, Dave Wilson, there with his stock of the day. And that would be Sanderson Farms, Corey. This is a company that's all about chicken. The poultry processor has been around for 70 years and has been publicly traded for the last 30 years. Ticker is SAFM. Now, this year has been one of Sanderson's best when it comes to stock performance. The shares have climbed as much as 83% and set records all along the way. The most recent record occurred 10 days ago. Today was a different story, and earnings were to blame. Sanderson's profit for the fiscal fourth quarter ending in October trailed the average analyst estimate in a Bloomberg survey. Companies said chicken prices dropped more than usual after Labor Day because of an industry-wide pickup in production. The increase may not be a one-time event either. Sanderson raised the possibility that Industry expansion will lead to a showdown in 2020 after new chicken processing plants come online. And the results and outlook sent Sanderson's shares to their biggest one-day decline since 2004. They fell 13% on the day. So is this just a case of maybe the analysts being too optimistic about the industry and missing something, or who knows? It could very well be. Yeah. One thing that was interesting, they talked about the effects of the hurricanes. Yeah. It actually resulted in fatter chickens, so more, you know, they were sold yeah. later, more production, huh. and you know, it actually hurt the industry as opposed to uh, perhaps helping. 
Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio. And follow us on Twitter. She's at Carol Masser, and I'm at Corey TV. 